Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello, you're listening to the Times Redbox Politics Podcast. I'm Patrick Maguire, in for Matt Chorley all week. It's a year since Rishi Sunak won the second Tory leadership election of 2022, so we're going back to school and marking his homework and progress over this pretty manic year in British politics. But before that, I've got a great columnist panel today. Time to speak to John Stevens from the Daily Mirror and Katie Balls, political editor of The Spectator. The Columnists on Times Radio. And what a treat we have in store for listeners today. Across from me in the Times Radio studio, just pulling on his headphones, is TV's John Stevens, political editor of the Daily Mirror. Hi, John. Hi, Patrick. Good to see you. And Katie Balls, political editor of Spectator. Hi, Katie. Hi. Uh, great to be with you both. Uh, when they said Katie Balls and John Stevens, I thought we can't possibly afford them both on the same day <laughs> in the same taxi. That's an outrage. But somehow we've made it work. So thanks very much for co- joining us. Um, it won't have escaped your notice that it's a year since Rishi Sunak was uh, approved as Tory leader by his uh, colleagues. So let's take a look back at the year we've had. What's the highlight of your year been, John? I mean, the highlight for me as a journalist working on the Daily Mirror has been the never-ending list of government sleaze scandals you know, you compare that to a year ago when Rishi Sunak said that he was going to lead this government of integrity, professionalism, accountability. Loads of Tory MPs thought they'd vote for Rishi Sunak. We'd have an end of the chaos of Boris Johnson. But thankfully, to fill our pages, we've had a constant flow of cabinet ministers. We've had to go Nadim Zahawi, Dominic Raab, Gavin Williamson. I mean, Suella Bravman's just about still there. So there's definitely been a row of kind of scandals to keep us going. Well, John, analysis like that, anyone would think you work for the Daily Mirror. They would be right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Katie, interesting polling that's out today shows number of 2019 Tory voters who will vote for another party uh, is just under 30%. Uh, Number of Tory voters now say they don't know is just under 25%. You know, it's clear that Rishi Sunak is having difficulty keeping hold of Boris Johnson's coalition and the, the entire sort of rationale for Rishi Sunak was, you know, he's the guy that'll steady the ship and help the Tories win an election. That doesn't quite seem to be happening, does it? No, I mean, I do think there's an argument that he has steadied the ship to a degree, just because if you think back to a year ago, um, 
what Rishi Sunak you know entered number ten to as a backdrop was market chaos. Um, you know, a Tory party that really had looked in the abyss almost and thought, well, let's give it a go having another leader and see if we can hold together. But it did feel like a tinderbox at times. So I think there has been a sense of bringing uh, some calm to things. But when it comes to the second part of your question, which is to then convert that into an electoral message and bringing back the voters they need. Um, they're obviously nowhere near where they need to be. And therefore, um, you know, you can calm things. But I think there's still that sense of fatalism amongst Tory MPs, perhaps less passion and excitement. I, I mean, it doesn't even feel like as though there's enough enthusiasm for a coup these days. Um, but instead, you know, just a sense of being quite resigned to where they are. And this YouGov polling is really interesting because it shows Rishi Sunak is sort of winning back voters who would say they vote for a more left-wing party, uh, that figure's now around 15%. But he's now losing voters to Reform UK as well, around 10% of 2019 Tory voters sell a vote for Reform UK. If you look at the by-elections last week, Labour's majority was smaller than the number of people who said they'd vote for Reform UK. And it's a tricky one, isn't it, John? Because if you're Rishi Sunak, you're going to be... You've got loads of MPs in your ear saying we've we've got a true blue values, that's how we win back, we've got to unite our coalition. You've got others saying, well, hang on, Suella Bradman and people like her are alienating our core vote in the Shires. So he's sort of stuck between a rock and a hard place in that respect, isn't he? Yeah, and you think that, if anything, the government's done quite effectively over the last few months would be having characters like Suella Bradman appealing to those voters who might switch to reform. But you look at those numbers, as you say, in the by-election, and there was still quite a big number who were switching to reform. I guess the question for the Tory party is, how do you win those people back? Do you kind of work out some kind of deal... Do we suddenly see Lord Richard Tice entering, entering the Lords to stop them running candidates against Tory MPs? We know they did a deal with Nigel Farage ahead of the last election, so they weren't sitting standing against sitting Tory MPs. But this time round, so far, Richard Tice has been saying he's not interested in any sort of deal. And he says, as far as they're concerned, if you vote Labour or vote Tories, it's all the same. It's kind of watered down policies and that if you want authentic right-wing policies you have to go for Reform UK. What, how worried the top Tories about Reform UK, Katie? You know, you speak to number 10 people all the time. How, you know, is this something they, they are really worried about? Yeah, I speak to a whole range of people. Yeah, you speak, um, yeah sorry, <laughs> you, you are an omnivore in terms of your sourcing. I don't mean to typecast you. But, no, I mean, I, I think after the by-election results, certainly um, the thing that kept coming back to me was, uh, you know, we are the reform actually aspect was worrying. I think Tory is a bit more than Labour, which I think can sound a bit absurd given how far Labour were, but it's that point, which is in the local elections, one of the things Tories took comfort from was the fact that reform didn't really have much of a presence of, you know, 500 councillors they put up. I think they got around six. UKIP lost all of theirs. And it was the threat, you know, the party to the right of the Tories actually evaporating. Um, that no longer feels as though it's the case. And therefore, even though it's a small number of votes, it could be what edges them in lots of Red Bull seats. And um, I think that it makes the judgment we're going to get from the Supreme Court um, more, even more important when it comes to the government's Rwanda scheme. Because I think when you speak to MPs in Red Bull seats, they think that stopping the boats is the way that they would manage to quell the support for reform in a general election. Um, but certainly you look at that YouGov data and that double squeeze of votes going both directions is something, you know, it's not 
it's quite common for a Tory leader. If you think about David Cameron and UK mm. Boris Johnson and the Brexit party. But I think the fear is they're not sure that Rishi Sunak yet has a way to appeal to reform voters unless he has delivery and delivery is proving pretty hard to do. Do you agree, John? Yeah, and I think that another reason why Rwanda will be important is the Tories are worried about how their voters won't come out an election. The Labour Party of Keir Starmer isn't as scary to many voters as the Labour Party of Jeremy Corbyn. But as we saw in the by-elections over the last week, there was low turnout from Tory voters. So it's coming up with ways that motivate their voters to actually get out of bed and go to a polling station on election day. And you speak to some people on the Tory side, they think that some of those voters in those Red Bull seats would be motivated if Rwanda's on the ballot paper. And we know that the Labour Party has said that if they get into power, they will get rid of Rwanda. And there's some on the Tory side who think they might have been slightly cleverer if they just said, if we get into power, we would review Rwanda. And if it was working, we would keep it. And if it wasn't, and we don't expect it to be work, we would get rid of it. Yeah, that's a sort of glimmer, a sort of slither of hope for some people uh, in in Tory world, isn't it, Katie? This this line from Keir Starmer, it's a very clear dividing line. Yes, completely. And I think this just this idea that they would be able to say, well, look, we've managed to get a flight having taken on peers, taken on the courts, taken on all what they were pitched as vested interests, and the Labour leader would stop that. And what is this about a returns agreement? And of course, we can get into an endless debate about returns agreement right now, but I suspect we don't have time. But they will use that as an attack. I think the problem for uh, Rishi Sunak is this all does for, uh, rely on the court he's going his way in the coming weeks and if he doesn't I do think that means that you know you can see the path of optimism for some Tories I think this is one of the only things they can see changing the mood music really mm. in the coming few months if the court judgment doesn't go Rishi Sunak's way I think things could get you know very tricky for him in terms of are you then in a territory of pledging to leave the ECHR which is very divisive to the Tory body. Well speaking of the prospect of another Brexit style referendum one of the godfathers of Brexit, said something very, very interesting yesterday. Not many people have noticed. Steve Baker, a prominent Brexiteer who listeners will know, has expressed regret that the Brexit referendum did not require a supermajority to pass. Uh, he now thinks the Leave vote should have required 60%, even though that would have meant it was defeated. As we all know, got 52% in the end. Uh, he was giving his remarks in the context of his job as Northern Ireland minister. Uh, he was saying... 50% plus one should not be uh, the threshold for a vote on Irish unification. But I think it's his remarks on Brexit that a lot of people will find fascinating. It's really interesting, this, isn't it? It's sort of, do you think, what's Steve Baker playing at, John? I mean, can you imagine David Cameron back in the run-up to that referendum if he suggested it wasn't going to be a simple majority vote, it was going to be you had to get 60%. There is no way that the Tory party would have allowed him to do it. Remember all of those rows that went round in circles whether the government was able to send leaflets to people's houses. You had that constant threat of whether Chris Grayling or Ian Duncan Smith might resign from the cabinet at any moment over any different issue on the referendum and the Tory party, you know, threatening to vote against all kinds of issues because they thought that the vote was being rigged. I think that if you had have had it, that it was a majority. Imagine the rows we would still be having now about how that referendum had been rigged. I mean, the rows over Brexit are bad enough now several years on. But if we had that situation and we'd have gone into the situation where we probably have had another referendum pushed through by the Brexiteers or maybe a third one and you would just get this never-ending situation that I think, thank goodness, it wasn't that sort of scenario. Katie, I think lots of Remainers will point to this and say, aha, even Steve Baker thinks Brexit should have won. 
Is, is it that simple? I don't think it is that simple, though. Yesterday, as soon as he said it, I did have uh, several figures who worked on the Leave campaign send it to me. Um, you know, slightly like I raised eyebrow emojis and rolling eyes. So I think so. I think the concern was it does make exactly that that point and can be read as it by by Remainers. I mean, I agree with John. I think if you'd done a a sixty percent, it has to get to you. Would just would have never heard. You know, people would have said that you know you're stacking it. It's unfair. I think. It's interesting since I think Steve Baker particularly has been on a unique journey since the EU referendum result. If you look at some of his past comments, apologies he's given, and I think you know he speaks. He used to be seen as you know that Brexit hardliner, the hard man of the ERG, and he's actually really tried to kind of distance himself from that and said he's had a lot of time to reflect. So therefore, I think it isn't. I don't think what Steve Baker is and where he is now is reflective probably of the broader movement of Tory Brexiteers. It's, yeah, it is interesting. And you mentioned Steve Baker's journey. There's a very good Redbox podcast about that. Matt and Steve <laughs> Swinford uh, interviewing him a few months ago, which I recommend listeners uh, dig out. It's very good, very moving uh, in parts. Uh, what do you think of the, the journey Tory Brexiteers have been on, John? Even if it's not the same as Steve Baker. Do you, do you pick up when you speak to Tory Brexiteers any sense of regret? Or is it the sort of line sort of communists used to use, you know, like true communism has never been tried. We've not done Brexit right yet. I think I'd agree with Katie that most Brexiteers are nowhere near that camp of Steve Baker, particularly on this issue, that... I think that a lot of them, if they are being totally honest with you, will recognise that things haven't totally worked out in many areas. But the idea that any of them have got serious regret and realise, wish we hadn't left the EU, it's just not a reality. That was John Stevens from The Mirror and Katie Balls from The Spectator. Remember, you can read all of the columnists we hear from on this podcast if you get yourself a Times subscription or just pick up a copy of the paper. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash timesredbox to get yourself a digital subscription. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. You're listening to the Redbox Podcast. Now it's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. I can confirm... Uh, that we have received one valid nomination. And Rishi Sunak is therefore elected as leader of the Conservative Party. Yes, one year ago today, Rishi Sunak became leader of the Conservative Party and Prime Minister. Twelve months, fine pledges... 13 foreign trips, three cabinet resignations, nine by-elections, one unfastened seatbelt and fixed penalty notice, two reshuffles and 20 points behind in the polls later, you might think you know what's happened this past year in British politics. But just how is the Prime Minister faring when it comes to the policies that really matter? Today, we're going to take a look at where he could improve by marking his first terms report card just how is he getting on in the key subjects 
at the Great British High School. Uh, we're going to start with a subject that's very close to the Prime Minister's heart, maths, where maybe he had the most catching up to do, taking over from Liz Truss. We will make sure our national debt is falling. We will halve inflation this year. We will grow the economy. Yes, three of the Prime Minister's five pledges that he set out in January concerned the economy, a subject that Liz Truss, I think most of her colleagues would agree, flunked quite spectacularly. Now, who better to ask to assess the Prime Minister's performance on this subject than Paul Johnson, Director of the Institute for Fiscal Studies. I asked him how the Prime Minister's been getting on, starting with that key pledge on reducing the national debt. Well, he didn't put a timescale on it. I mean, at the budget, the forecast was for debt to be falling by the thinnest of margins um, five years out, which is what the um, Chancellor's target is. So I'm sure that in the autumn statement, again, we will see numbers which suggest that debt is just about falling five years out. But that doesn't really give us any room for manoeuvre against that. Now, of course, things might turn out better. Growth might turn out better than we expect. Interest rates might turn out lower than we expect tax revenues might come in better but we're basically on a 50 50 shot at the moment and also he promised to halve inflation by the end of the year he did put a time scale on that how do you assess his performance over the course of the year on that big ticket pledge on which he stakes so much well it looks looks like it'll be closer than he hoped back in january but i think probably inflation will halve over the year it is worth saying, though, that this is really not in the Prime Minister's or the government's gift. In the end, this is the role of the Bank of England. Now, the government could have made things worse. It could have had a big splurge of spending or tax cuts, which could put more energy into the economy and increased inflation. But in the end, quite clearly, it is the role of the Bank of England through increasing interest rates to bring inflation under control. And the reason the, the Prime Minister made that pledge back in January was Back in January, the Bank of England's forecasts were that they would easily reduce inflation by half by the end of the year. That's looked shaky over the year. I think, as I say now, probably going to probably going to get there, but with less of a margin to spare than I think anyone would have hoped back in January. And why has inflation been so much stickier here than in other comparable Western economies? Is that in any way the fault of the government? Well, there's lots of things going on there. I mean, partly uh, it seems to be associated with um, a tighter labour market in the UK, which has pushed wages up faster, which has uh, created these second round inflationary effects. So in other words, we had prices going up, then people were getting wage rises and that pushes prices up. Um, again, partly we are more dependent actually on gas than a lot of other countries. So we had a bigger uh, impact from that. Partly, um, we've got uh, a relatively uh, a relatively weak pound. So all of those things have pushed inflation a bit more. But I think really it's the fact that the economy seems to have been tighter. It's had less room for manoeuvre and that's pushed inflation up, the second round impacts. And what are the prospects of the growth the Prime Minister has pledged to deliver? Well, hopefully we'll get growth. I mean, this, this year hasn't been as bad, for example, as the Bank of England were forecasting um, right at the beginning of the year, they were expecting uh, a recession. We haven't had a recession this year, but we've had pretty poor growth. So um, my guess is that we will continue to get growth, but at a pretty low rate over the next two or three years. Now, one of the problems, I suspect, facing the government and the Chancellor is that the Office of Budget Responsibility will bring down its growth forecast in the autumn statement in a month's 
time, back in March, they were expecting growth of 2% a year or so into the future, which isn't brilliant, but isn't too bad. But most forecasters since then have been rather less positive than that. So, yes, I think we'll get growth, but I don't think we'll get very much of it. And remember, that's after a long period of pretty poor growth. Uh, we've had a pretty depressing chat this morning, Paul. Is there anything <laughs> in the economic <laughs> vista to be uh, to be cheerful about? Oh, I hate it when people ask me that. It's very hard to think about ter- about things that are very are very positive at the moment. Um, look, our living standards have stopped falling. Um, wages are at least going up in line with prices at the moment. The economy is much more stable than it was a year ago after the trust quarting debacle. Um, and we've recovered in many ways much better from COVID across the world than I think most people um, would have expected. The fact that we had that huge shock and we're not really much worse off than we were beforehand is not too bad. And don't forget that while we're talking about poor growth and um, all these problems, you know, looked at from the, you know, the purview of the whole of history, and if there's one time you wanted to be born, it would probably be today. I mean, we are better off, we are healthier and all those things than we have been in the past. So it is easy to get it is easy to get miserable about the specifics of the moment and the fact that we're not growing as fast as we used to and all those sorts of things. But actually, we're still, on the whole, better off than we've ever been. That was Paul Johnson, Director of the Institute for Fiscal Studies, on Rishi Sunak's progress in maths, aka his pledges on the economy. Remember, at the start of this year, he pledged to halve inflation, grow the economy and reduce debt. Not as straightforward as he might have thought, Paul Johnson told us there. Well, there's the bell. Turn ahead to French. So I want to bring the levels of legal migration down. But I think it's important because I spend a lot of my time talking to people. And when it comes to migration, what I hear from everyone is the priority they have for the government is to stop the boats. Uh, Monsieur Matt Dathan, Home Affairs Editor at The Times, is here to mark Rishi Sunak's homework on migration and stopping the boats uh, from France to Britain. Uh, bonjour, Matt. Bonjour, ça va? <laughs> uh, ça va bien. All the more bien for speaking to you, as ever. Uh, let's talk legal migration first. Uh, the Prime Minister has pledged to bring it down. How's he getting on with that? Uh, well, well, that depends where he's starting from. If he's starting from the 2019 levels, from the Tory manifesto when uh, net migration was at about two and a quarter, uh, 250,000, uh, then he's doing very badly. It was 606,000 at the end of last year. But if he's marking his homework from the point at which he became prime minister, he's probably going to be doing better because uh, the figures out next month are expected to show uh, a quite, a, quite a, a significant fall from that net migration record of 606,000 last year. And let's talk about his big ticket pledge, the pledge he made at the start of the year with those pledges on the economy and the NHS, stopping the boats. That's why we're talking in French this morning. How is he getting on with that one? I mean, as we've heard already on the show this morning, the answer is sort of conditional on what happens in the Supreme Court in the coming weeks, isn't it? That's right. And again, I think if we, we need to go back to what was his original pledge, we must remember that his pledge was to stop the boats, so so zero, um, and he didn't give a time frame. But the sort of the common uh, convention, uh, the conventional wisdom is that it's by the election. If he was to pledge, uh, if he had pledged to uh, reduce the numbers coming across the channel, he'd be doing very well indeed because crossings are down 32% on this time last year. So far, about 26,000 people have crossed the channel uh, this year in small boats, and the same period last year was about 37,000. Uh, all actually a bit higher. Um, so he's doing very well in terms of um, making progress towards that. But if he's to get 
that number down to zero, he's obviously got a long way to go. And that's going to depend uh, on the, what the government think is going to depend on the on whether they get flights to Rwanda and get that deterrent uh, impact going. And that's um, we, we, that's completely up in the air. It's all up to the Supreme Court. Well, how optimistic are ministers? Because just to remind listeners, the Supreme Court ruled, uh, or rather the uh, the High Court ruled, um, that you can't deport people to Rwanda because of the risk of uh, political persecution, uh, basically. How optimistic are they that they've done enough to show that Rwanda is indeed a safe country and that the Supreme Court justices will rule in their favour? Well, ministers are, are in the Home Office are fairly confident of winning the case um, because they point to the previous judgments of uh, Lord Reid and his uh, deputy, Lord Hodge, for example, they, they take a much more small-c conservative approach. They don't want to intervene on political, ethical issues. Um, and they also have warned of the over-interpreting the European Convention of Human Rights, which this boils down to. Uh, but then if you talk to other people in government, and there's an interesting article in the Mail on Sunday, uh, at the weekend, uh, saying that they, they, they think there's only a 60% chance. Uh, well, no, sorry, they think there's only a 40% chance. So a 60% chance they'll lose. Um, so... I th- there's a there's a mi- mixture of opinions. I think it's sort of expectation management, really. But if you talk if you talk to people close to Suella Bravman, Robert Jenrick, they're fairly confident that they will get flights off uh, in February or March. That's a big call. It's a big call. There's also been a lot of noise around shoplifting and overcrowded prison uh, prisons too. So, do you think the Prime Minister over the past year has struggled to sustain that Tory reputation for them being the party of law and order too? I think certainly uh, as a party, they've really uh, been damaged on their law and order reputation. But I don't think that's down to Rishi Sunak. It's factors much more long-standing, such as the austerity cuts uh, and also the COVID pandemic, which which built up a massive backlog in the courts. And then the barristers' strike, which uh, closed courts on and off for about six months last year. So he's been dealt a bad hand. He's trying Mm. to make the best of it as he can. But the prisons are overcrowded. Um, Shoplifting offences and other theft offences are going up but on on all other on most other crime offences they have actually fallen since uh, since he took charge so he can probably claim victory on uh, or claim progress at least on, on the overall uh, crime record since he became prime minister so overall on migration getting it down legal and illegal and the law and order issues you've just spoken about matt or should i say monsieur dathan uh rating out of five for the prime minister I would actually give him an optimistic three out of five. Um, yeah, trois. Uh, point. Trois points. Uh, well, you, Paul Johnson also gave him a three out of five. So that's two three out of five so far. He's not only passing, he's passing with 60%. That'll get you a 2-1 at most universities. I'm not sure Gillian Keegan would uh, wants to hear that. Uh, anyway, Matt, Monsieur Dathan, thanks very much. I've now got to head uh, to biology, so I'll let you go. The NHS is not for sale, never has been and never will be. NHS waiting lists will fall. So how is the Prime Minister doing on improving the NHS as he promised? Let's go to Elna Haywood, the Times' health correspondent. Hi, Elna. Hello. Uh, Waiting lists, as the Prime Minister promised, are not falling. No, they're rising pretty quickly, actually. Whose fault is that? I mean... Because the government would say, oh, well, look, they were falling before the strikes. Is that strictly true? No, they've, they've been going up since the, well before the pandemic. The, they've been on an upward trajectory. The strikes have made them go up a bit faster than they were. Um, but I think, you know, it's quite strong counterfactual history to say they wouldn't be going up if it weren't for strikes. Um, so to put it in context, when Rishi Sunak became prime minister a year ago, the waiting list was at 7 million, which was a record. Mm. 
um, and now it's at 7.75 million, um, which is also a record. Um, but that's another 700,000 people waiting for NHS care. And the Prime Minister has also spoken at some length, as has the Health Secretary Steve Barclay, uh, about reform and changing the structure of the NHS and introducing technology so that people might be able to access care where it's more available to get those waiting lists down. How's, how's that been going? It's been going okay. I think the, the strikes issue and the waiting list issue, really, you, it's hard to look past that when mm. you're assessing how he's done on health. But the, the big thing that Richard Sunak did do this summer was unveil this NHS workforce plan, which and that includes some of the stuff about technology, artificial intelligence, and also is the first ever big long-term NHS workforce plan. It includes much-needed reforms like doubling medical school places, um, which have been really welcomed by people in the NHS. Um, so it's not all bad, but then the question is, is there any point having snazzy technology in place if, if people are still having to wait a year to get an appointment? And if the staff who would operate it are on strike, why are the strikes still going on? I mean, obviously you have a very militant leadership of the junior doctors bit of the British Medical Association. I think most people, including some of their colleagues in the NHS, would agree that. But is it also a question of a government that's dug its heels in and isn't giving any ground at all on pay, or is that unfair on ministers? Yeah, I think the government haven't been particularly savvy on it because they're, they've drawn this very short, strict line in the sand saying, we've given you a pay settlement, we're not negotiating further. And I think that sort of makes sense to the junior doctors because, like you said, they're very militant and they want 35% and haven't indicated they will settle for less. But the consultants, who are the senior doctors... They really don't want to be in this dispute. They really don't want to be walking out on strike. They know how bad it is. So they're kind of begging the government, like, can you just give us something that we can go back to the members with? But the government's position, because it is so hard and saying we're not negotiating at all, means that although they've entered some informal talks and have started talks about non-pay issues in the past week or so, it, it means that it's kind of hard for them to meet in the middle when both sides of being so, you know, bogged down in their positions. Mm. So out of five overall, Prime Minister's handling of health this year? I think the strikes mean he's got to have a two. A two? <laughs> it's still a pass, but only just. We had a very busy morning, gruelling morning of maths, French and biology. Now got double geography to get through. Yes, we're going to keep making progress towards our net zero ambitions and we're also going to strengthen our energy security. I can say confidently that we don't have to do these things, whether it's the, you know, have the ma government mandating how many people drive in cars, government saying that you need to have seven bins. Yes, let's take stock of how the Prime Minister's been doing on the environment. For this one, I spoke to Mr Alan Vaughan, The Times' environment editor. Sunak had always been sort of... Everything he'd said in the past before becoming Prime Minister was fairly sort of sensible and sane on climate change and the environment, but it just hadn't really featured very prominently um, in any of his speeches or sort of comments in the past. So in that sense, it was a bit of an unknown quantity. No one really knew sort of how much he was going to put it at the forefront, which, and you know, there was always a big question was, would he have the sort of passion for it that Boris Johnson clearly had? He really had gone big on the green stuff and had, you know, made... You know, he had this 10-point green plan. He'd ho helped host COP26. He's clearly quite into the subject. And so I think it was a, a little bit of an ongoing quantity as we, when he became prime minister. And over the past year, 
he has put net zero at the heart of his political offer, or rather the debate around net zero. He remains committed to the legal target for 2050, but there have been quite significant changes, haven't there? Yeah, there's been some pretty big changes. I think, I think for me, I was being, I think even though the government quite early on into his premiership did things like approved the first coal mine for, you know, a generation last December and then approved a new round of oil and gas licenses and various other things that most people would see as sort of anti-environment. I think I was still being quite generous to this government under Sunak, um, in my view, you know, thinking maybe, you know, maybe in the round, actually, you know, they're not too bad on the environment. I think that calculus changed over the summer. And not You mentioned the net zero speech and the obviously, you know, he made changes on policies on phasing out boilers, phasing out fossil fuel cars. And one that didn't really get much attention at the time, but was really important, scrapping rules that would make landlords have to make homes less drafty for renters. So pushing up bills for renters. Um, and then also, which, which you know, we've picked up in our Clean It Up Water campaign, trying to scrap rules to protect rivers from pollution from new homes, these so-called nutrient neutrality rules. So I think, given what we've seen in the last few months, the you know the it, what's my metaphor here? <laughs> the thing that the equation has changed, and I think it's clear that you know this prime minister has sort of taken backward steps on the environment and water pollution, which you just mentioned, has become a huge environmental and electoral issue hasn't it mm, yeah i mean we, the i think it's interesting isn't it the idea a few years ago of like the state of our rivers and seas being a, a a mainstream environment or even election issue would have seemed a bit strange i think now you look at the polling more than half of people say that the sort of handling of the sewage crisis will influence their vote next year and, you know, the Lib Dems have made it one of their top three campaigning issues. And that's obviously quite interesting given where some of the marginals are. Um, and we saw in the local election that, you know, this, you know, last year, normally these local election leaflets, are, you know, the ones in May that we had in England, are normally obsessed with potholes and things like that. This year, it was striking how many of those leaflets were covered by promises of cleaner rivers. And I think the, I think the Conservatives do clearly feel exposed on this i mean literally as we're speaking i've just found out about an hour ago that the government has a government was going to have a second pop at scrapping those river protection rules and actually we've just found out very recently that they're not going to do that which i think says a lot about how concerned they are to be sort of seen to be voting for more sewage in the run-up to an election. Uh, you mentioned the Times Clean It Up campaign about water pollution. For a long mm-hmm. time, the, the Times has also campaigned uh, for a new Clean Air Act and cleaner air. And mm. that has also become a massive political football this year in the wake of the Uxbridge by-election. That's casting a very long shadow over environmental policy in this country, isn't it? Yeah, air pollution hasn't gone away. You know, most of our cities are still... Uh, unfortunately, bathed in in air that is at illegal levels above above what it should be. Um, obviously, there's no longer the sort of sanction of fines from the EU coming on that, which used to be a bit of a stick. Um, in terms of as an electoral issue, you know, the main thing has obviously been you know the ULES, the ultra low emission zone in London, and the expansion of that to the whole of the city by Sadiq Khan. I think what's been interesting there is. It's not just been so that, you know, the Conservative Party seemed to have decided that there's going to be, you know, political capital in going slow or even going backwards on those sort of measures, clean air zones and the like. Uh, what's interesting is Labour's not really been 
that much better. I think, you know, we saw around the time of the Archbishop by-elections, the, um, you know, Kistama was very sort of equivocal about his backing for Khan. I think it's fair to, you know, to put mm. it politely. Mm. Um, and so Labour's not, it's not entirely clear how strong Labour are going to be or, you know, if they're going to be more progressive on air pollution than the Conservatives. That is a big question, particularly when Labour sends that as an electoral vulnerability too. Adam, your score out of five then for the Prime Minister on a year of environmental policy? I think it's got to be a two. Wow. I, I, mean, <laughs> I, think, I think, look, I was really being he quite charitable. He scraped to pass 40%. Yeah, no, yeah, I mean, look, I could be brutal to give him one. I mean, they have done some good stuff. Let's acknowledge that. But overall in the round, it's, I think it's got to be a two. It's not been very good. <sighs> Another two out of ten. Can't catch a break today. Well, it's time for the last lesson of our day at Times Radio High. Obviously disappointing results. It's important to remember the context. Midterm bar elections are always difficult for incumbent governments. And of course, there are also local factors at play here. Well, time for a politics lesson then with the Times' political editor, Stephen Swinford. Hello, Steve. Good morning, Patrick. Several by-election defeats... Personal favourability at minus 40. His joint second lowest score ever. Labour still well ahead in the polls. You know, a year on from entering number 10, Rishi Sunak can't have expected he'd be here. It's not going brilliantly, is what many ministers are pointing out to me. So they were saying that they hoped that conference would be a kind of springboard to a reset, the start of a change. But instead, it's had virtually no impact on the polls. Um, and there are concerns that some, among some MPs that things are going backwards. I was talking to one minister this weekend who was basically saying, it's all over. It's, it, we, we can't win from here. Now, this is strongly rejected by number 10. And they say that there is a way forward here that things are going to get better on the economy, it's all going to start to look better next year. But the key point is, Patrick, he's running out of time. And because this time last year he was pitching himself as a, you know, the man to steady the economic ship. But if you look at the polls, as I know you do regularly, the YouGov polls for the Times, on all the key indicators, you know, economic competence, uh, number of people who say he's been a good or great prime minister, the numbers are falling. And as you say, he has less and less time to turn that, public sentiment around i mean what when you speak to people in number 10 are they still convinced that he he can do that in the time he's got left it depends who you speak to some are increasingly less convinced when they're being very candid over a drink or a lunch um, others are still confident about it and they think that this strategy is going to work but the worry is that those around sunak were pretty confident about the conference strategy they thought that that Tory conference strategy, which scrapped the northern leg of HS2 and reinvested £36 billion in local areas, would start to shift the dial. It hasn't yet. Now, there is time. The overall strategy is they think that the polls will start to tighten by the end of this year. But I think the problem is, Patrick, if those polls don't start to tighten, if that Labour lead remains the same, then we're going to go into next year with the Tories in increasingly difficult straits. And that discipline across the party is going to start to fray. And Steve, I have to ask, a year into Rishi Sunak, is it out of the question that if he's playing it long for another election this time next year, that he might have a terrible round of local elections in May and Tory MPs might think, what's there to lose from another confidence vote and another leadership contest? Do you hear anything to that effect? Anything's possible, and some people are very unhappy, but I think it is incredibly unlikely, not least because there isn't another viable candidate. 
So yes, some people say that they could sometimes submit submit letters, but the general areas that Sunak is going to lead them into this election, come what may now, alternatives have been tried, alternatives have failed, and that he is the Prime Minister until the next general election. Now, like I say, things can change, Patrick. I may well be proved wrong on that, but at the moment, I would expect him to continue through despite the discontent from some backbenchers. And how do you think the most sensible minds in number 10 would rate their first year out of five? I think they'd probably honestly give themselves a three or a four out of five. They would say, we've made progress towards the economic goals. They would say, we've made some progress on small boats. Uh, There's some progress, they'd also argue, on the NHS. And they're beginning to change the conversation. Well, Steve Swinford, political editor of The Times, thank you for that crash course in the politics of the first year of Rishi Sunak's premiership. A three or a five is the Prime Minister's self-assessment. That's pretty remarkable, I think. So there we have it. A three out of five from Paul Johnson in maths. A three out of five in French from Times Home Affairs editor Matt Dathan. Two out of five in biology from Eleanor Haywood, Times Health correspondent. And two out of five in geography from Adam Vaughan, the Times environment editor. And as you just heard from Steve Swinford, our political editor, Rishi Sunak, will probably give himself a three or a four out of five. So not miles away from uh, our most generous teachers here at times radio high room for improvement though i think everybody involved would admit that's what we got time for on today's red box podcast i'll be back tomorrow in the meantime remember to like share follow and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcast from <laughs> <laughs>